Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you eat? He asked. I don't know, she answered listlessly. Perhaps there's a bit of bread in the cupboard. I don't want nothing. It's so hot. And father ain't been home since tea time. The boy rummaged and found a crust. Gnawing at this, he crossed to where the baby lay. Hello, Louie, he said, bending and patting the muddy cheek. Hello. The baby turned feebly on its back and set up a thin wail. Its eyes were large and bright. Its tiny face was piteously flea-bitten and strangely old. Why, she's you hungry, mother? said Dicky Perrot, and took the little thing up. He sat on a small box and rocked the baby on his knees, feeding it with morsels of chewed bread. The mother, dolefully inert, looked on and said, She's that backward, I'm quite wore out, more than ten months old, and don't even crawl out. It's been a never-ending trouble, his children. She sighed and presently stretched herself on the bed. The boy rose, and carrying his little sister with care, for she was dozing, essayed to look through the griming window. The dull flush still spread overhead, but Jago Court lay darkling below, with scarce a sign of the ruinous backyards that edged it on this and the opposite sides, and nothing but blackness between. The boy returned to his box and sat. Then he said, I don't suppose father's having a sleep outside, eh? The woman sat up with some show of energy. What? she said sharply. Sleep out in the street like them low rounds and learys? I should hope not. It's bad enough living here at all, and me being used to different things, Wumps, and all. You ain't seen him outside, have ye? No, I ain't seen him. I just looked in the court. Then, after a pause, I hope he's done a click, the boy said. His mother winced. I don't know what you mean, Dicky, she said, but falteringly. You, you're getting that low, and, and, why, cop something, of course. Nick something, you know. If you say such things as that, I'll tell him what you say, and he'll pay you. We ain't that sort of people, Dicky. You ought to know I was always kept respectable and straight all my life, I'm sure, eh? I know. You said so before to father. I card. We brought home that there yellow prop, the necktie pin. Why, where you get that? He ain't had a job for months and bumps. Where's the yanups come from what's been to pay the rent and get the toke and milk for Louie? Think I dunno. know? I ain't a kid. I know. Dicky, Dicky, you mustn't say such things. 
was all the mother could find to say, with tears in her slack eyes. It's wicked, and, and low, and you must always be respectable and straight, Dicky, and you'll, you'll get on, then. Straight people's fools, I reckon. Kiddo Cook says that, and he's as white as Broad Street. When I grow up, I'm going to get Toff's clothes and be in the eye mob. They does big licks. They get put in a dark prison for years and years, Dicky, and, and if you sitch a wicked low boy, father will give you the strap. Ard. The mother returned, with what earnestness she might. Give me the baby, and you go to bed. Go on, for father comes. Dicky handed over the baby, whose wizened face was now relaxed in sleep, and slowly disencumbered himself of the ungainly jacket, staring at the wall in a brown study. It's a mug's what git took, he said absently, and hoarding ain't so bad. Then, after a pause, he turned and added suddenly, Bo's father'll be smugged one day, eh, mother? His mother made no reply, but bent languidly over the baby, with an indefinite pretense of settling it in a place on the bed. Soon Dicky himself, in the short and ragged shirt he had worn under the jacket, burrowed head first among the dingy coverings at the foot, and protruding his head at the other side, took his accustomed place crosswise at the extreme end. The filthy ceiling lit and darkened by fits, as the candlewick fell, and guttered to its end. He heard his mother rise and find another fragment of candle to light by its expiring flame, but he lay still wakeful. After a time he asked, Mother, why don't you come to bed? Waitin' for father. Go to sleep. He was silent for a while, but brain and eyes were wide awake, and soon he spoke again. Em no one's in the front room, he said. Ain't the man give his wife a hidin' yet? No. Nor yet the boy, Humpy Bacton? No. Seems they're mighty particular. Fancy theirselves too good for their neighbours. I heard Pigeony Pole say that. Only Pole said, You mustn't never listen to Pigeony Pole, Dicky. Ain't you heard me say so? Go to sleep. Here comes father. There was, indeed, a step on the stairs, but it passed the landing and went on to the top floor. Dicky lay awake, but silent, gazing upward and back through the dirty window just over his head. It was very hot, and he fidgeted uncomfortably, fearing to turn or toss, lest the baby should wake and cry. There came a change in the hue of the sky, and he watched the patch within his view, until the red seemed to gather in spots, and fade a spot at a time. Then, alas, there was a tread on the stairs that stayed at the door, and father had come home. Dicky lay still and listened. "'Lord, Josh, where you been?' Dicky heard his mother say. "'I'm almost wore out a-waitin'.' "'All right, all right.' This, in a hoarse grunt, little above a whisper. "'Got any water up here? Wash this here stick.' There was a pause, wherein Dicky knew his mother looked about her in vacant doubt as to whether or not water was in the room. Then a quick undertone scream, and the stick rattled heavily on the floor. "'It's sticky,' his mother said. "'Oh, God, Josh, look at that! And bits of air, too!' The great shadow of an open hand shot up across the ceiling and fell again. "'Oh, Josh! Oh, my God! You ain't, have ye?' "'No, no, not that!' 
Not what? God blimey, not what? Shut a mouth. If a man fights, you've got to fight back, ain't ye? Anyone would think it was a murder to look at ye. I ain't such a damn fool as that. Here, pull up that board. Dicky knew the loose floorboard that was lifted with a slight groaning jar. It was to the right of the hearth, and he had shammed sleep when it had been lifted once before. His mother whimpered and cried quietly. You'll get in trouble, Josh, she said. I wish you'd get a regular job, Josh, like what you used. I do, I do. The board was shut down again. Dicky Perrot, through one opened eye, saw the sky a pale grey above, and hoped the click had been a good one, hoped also that it might bring a bullock's liver for dinner. Out in the jago the pale dawn brought a cooler air and the chance of sleep. From the paving of old jago street, sad grey faces, open-mouthed, looked upward as from the valley of dry bones. Down by jago row the coshed subject, with the blood dry in his face, felt the colder air, and moved a leg. Section 2 Three quarters of a mile east of the Jago's outermost limits was the East End Elevation Mission and Pansophical Institute. Such was the amazing success whereof that a new wing had been built and was now to be declared open by a bishop of great eminence and industry. The triumphs of the East End Elevation Mission and Pansophical Institute were known and appreciated far from East London by people who knew less of that part than of Asia Minor. Indeed, they were chiefly appreciated by these. There were kept, perpetually on tap for the aspiring East Ender, the higher life, the greater thought, and the wider humanity, with other radiant abstractions, mostly in the comparative degree, specifics all for the manufacture of the superior person. There were many lectures given on still more subjects. Pictures were borrowed and shown, with revelations to the uninformed of the morals ingeniously concealed by the painters. The uninformed were also encouraged to debate and to produce papers on literary and political matters, while still unencumbered with the smallest knowledge thereof, for the enlargement of the understanding and the embellishment of the intellect. And there were classes, and clubs, and newspapers, and games of draughts, and musical evenings, and a brass band, whereby the life of the hopeless poor might be coloured, and the misery of the submerged alleviated. The wretches who crowded to these benefits were tradesmen's sons, small shopkeepers and their families, and neat clerks, with here and there a smart young artisan of one of the especially respectable trades. They freely patronised the clubs, the musical evenings, the brass band, and the bagatelle board, and those who took themselves seriously debated and mutually improved with pomp. Others, subject to savage fits of wanting to know, made short rushes at random evening classes, with intervals of disgusted apathy. Altogether, a number of decently dressed and manly young men passed many evenings at the Pansophical Institute in harmless pleasures, and often with an agreeable illusion of intellectual advance. Other young men, more fortunately circumstanced, with the educational varnish fresh and raw upon them, came from afar, equipped with a foreign mode of thought, and a proper ignorance of the world and the proportions of things, as missionaries. Not without some anxiety to their parents, they plunged into the perilous deeps of the East End, to struggle, for a fortnight, with its suffering and its brutishness. 
So they went among the tradesmen's sons and the shopmen, who endured them as they endured the nominal subscription, and they came away with a certain relief, and with some misgivings as to what impression they had made, and what they had done to make it. But it was with knowledge and authority that they went back among those who had doubted their personal safety in the dark region. The East End, they reported, was nothing like it was said to be. You could see much worse places up west. The people were quite a decent sort, in their way. Shocking bounders, of course, but quite clean and quiet, and very comfortably dressed, with ties and collars and watches. For the missionaries were few, and the subscribers to the Elevation Mission were many. Most had been convinced, by what they had been told, by what they had read in charity appeals, and perhaps by what they had seen in police court and inquest reports, that the whole East End was a wilderness of slums, slums packed with starving human organisms without minds and without morals.